Psalm 2. I realize you guys had Psalm 2 last week, but we're just going to read that Scripture again. It's very fitting with where we're at in Revelation chapter 12. <clears throat> so we'll read those two Scriptures this morning. And I'm going to clear my throat, hopefully. <clears throat> okay. Psalm 2. Let's hear the Word of the Lord. Why do the nations rage and the people plot a vain thing? The kings of the earth set themselves... And the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against His anointed, saying, Let us break their bonds in peace and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens shall laugh. I think I've told you before, there's only two places where it says in the Scripture that God laughs, and neither one of them are funny. They're scary, actually. The Lord shall hold them in derision. Then He shall speak to them in His wrath and distress them in his deep displeasure. Yet I have set my king on my holy hill of Zion. I will declare the decree. The Lord has said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will give you the nations for your inheritance and the ends of the earth for your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron. You shall dash them to pieces like a potter's vessel. Now therefore be wise, O kings. Be instructed, you judges of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son lest He be angry and you perish in the way when His wrath is kindled but a little. Blessed, blessed are all those who put their trust in Him. And then from Revelation chapter 12, read the whole chapter here. This morning we'll be looking at the first six verses. Again, the word of the Lord. Now a great sign appeared in heaven. A woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head a garland of twelve stars. Then being with child, she cried out in labor and in pain to give birth. And another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great fiery red dragon, having seven heads and ten horns and seven diadems on his head. His tail drew a third of the stars of heaven and threw them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was ready to give birth, to devour her child as soon as it was born. She bore a male child who was to rule all nations with a rod of iron. And her child was caught up to God and His throne. Then the woman fled into the wilderness where she has a place prepared by God and they should... Feed her there 1,260 days. And a war broke out in heaven. Michael and his angels fought with the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought. But they did not prevail, nor was a place found for them in heaven any longer. So the great dragon was cast out, the serpent of old called the devil and Satan, who deceives the whole world. He was cast to the earth, and his angels were cast out with him. Then I heard a loud voice saying in heaven, Now salvation and strength and the kingdom of our God and the power of His Christ have come. For the accuser of our brethren who accused them before our God day and night has been cast down. And they overcame Him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony and did not love their lives to the death. Therefore rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them, Woe to the inhabitants of the earth and the sea 
For the devil has come down to you, having great wrath, because he knows that he has a short time. And when the dragon saw that he had been cast to the earth, he persecuted the woman who gave birth to the male child. But the woman also was given but the woman was given two wings of a great eagle that she might fly away into the wilderness to her place where she is nourished for a time and times and half a time from the presence of the serpent. So the serpent spewed water out of his mouth like a flood after the woman that he might cause her to be carried away by the flood but the earth helped the woman. And the earth opened its mouth and swallowed up the flood which the dragon had spewed out of his mouth. And the dragon was enraged with the woman. And he went to make war with the rest of her offspring who keep the commandments of God and have the testimony of Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, we do ask that You would give us illumination as we look at Your Word. That You would speak to us through Your Spirit and Word, and touch our very hearts and souls so that we might worship You, so that we might hear You, and that we might not only be hearers of Your Word, but we might be doers of Your Word, for we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Beloved congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, this morning as we prepare ourselves for the celebration of the Lord's Supper by the preaching of the Word of God, we, we now come to the beginning of the fourth vision in the book of the Revelation of Jesus Christ. And, and so once more we are taken <coughs> excuse me <coughs> we are taken back to the beginning of this present era, that is, the time period that we are now in which is called the latter days in the scriptures. These are the days that began before the <clears throat> began, excuse me, with the first coming of Christ and they will end with his second coming. And I think you see here that the symbolism <clears throat> is is uh, unmistakable. Because the apostle John is really taking us back to the moment of Christ's birth, to the moment of his ascension into heaven uh, in verses 1 through 5 of this 12th chapter. And the fourth vision here doesn't end until you get to the end of chapter 14 where we have a white cloud and on the cloud set one like the Son of Man having on His head a golden crown and in His hand a sharp sickle. So He who sat on the cloud thrust in His sickle on the earth and the earth was reaped. In other words, judgment day has come. <clears throat> now I know I probably... Uh, bored you uh, with my reviews of these visions, but I want to do this again because I want to make an important point about where we are at here as we come to chapter 12. There's an important uh, thing that we need to see here. Chapters 1 through 3 gave us the the first vision, which worked its way through the age of the church. Chapters 4 through 7 gave us a second vision that gives us the uh, heavenly scene of the Lamb slain. And He is the one who is worthy to open the seals of the scroll that bring God's judgment on the earth. Chapters 8-11 through 11 is where we just finished. And it gives us a third vision where we have the sounding of the seven trumpets of God's wrath. And each of these visions bring us to the end of the age. They bring us to the final judgment and yet each one kind of goes a little bit further with more and more detail. But something happens here in chapter 12 that goes beyond just the beginning of the next vision. 
Chapter 12 actually begins the second major division of the book of Revelation. The smaller division would be those seven visions that we're working our way through. But, and you find that that goes from chapter 1 to chapter 22. But there is a major division that divides the book into two major parts. It divides the book in half. Chapters 1 through 11 make up that first division. And of course, chapters 12 through 22 make up the second division. And in the first division, in the first chapters of 1 through 11, we see this struggle among mankind, among humanity. A struggle really between believers and unbelievers. The world attacks the church. The church is avenged. The church is protected. And the church is finally victorious. When we come to the second division that begins here in chapter 12, we see that this struggle on earth really has a deeper background. There's more to this than just this struggle we see in the world today. And by that I mean that this is truly a spiritual battle. Because here we see the devil's attack upon the man-child who's born to the woman. The dragon attacks Christ. Attacks the promised one. But he fails to destroy him. And so the dragon turns his wrath against his people, his church. And now we're going to be introduced here to the enemies of God's people, the real enemies of God's people. And <clears throat> the main characters that are introduced in this next section. <clears throat> Man, I don't know what's wrong. <clears throat> Excuse me. <clears throat> we must have turned on the heaters, right? No. <clears throat> okay. So the main characters are going to be introduced to us in this next section. And these characters arise in opposition to Christ and to His church. And they are the dragon, the beast out of the sea, the beast out of the earth, Babylon, and the people who receive the mark of the beast. And the visions that follow now will show us what's going to happen to each of these anti-Christian forces. We will see what happens to those who have the mark of the beast in chapters 15 and 16. To the harlot Babylon and to the two beasts in chapters 17 through 19. And then finally, the dragon in chapters 20 through 22. And I would point out there, it might be interesting to note, uh, uh, that each of these are actually dealt with in reverse order that they're introduced. The dragon's introduced first, he's dealt with last in the visions. And so it's a bit of a, a chiasm for those who take note of those things. Uh, what's also clear here, of course, is that the central theme of this first main division, the first 11 chapters, that main theme is continued on into the second division. And that theme, as I told you before, is that the victory of Christ and His church over His helpers, excuse me, the victory of Christ and His church over Satan and his helper. That's the theme. That's what we're assured of here. This, this apocalypse of Jesus Christ. It's meant to reveal. That's what apocalypse means. That things are really not what we think they are. They're not really what they seem. I mean, everything around us seems to point to the victory of Satan. Of the beast. Of the world. And yet it will not be so. It will not be so. I, I guess that's one of the reasons I'm not a post-millennialist here. You know, if the gospel is going to prevail in such a way that it would usher in a thousand years of global Christianity, 
then why do we have this message over and over that the church is going to expect, it should expect, suffering in this world right up until the time Christ returns? And that's why we, we are encouraged here. We're exhorted. We're comforted with this message that one day, and it will surely and certainly come, one day Christ will come. And He will rescue. He will deliver His church from all the powers of darkness. And He will bring in the fullness of the salvation that is ours in Christ. He will bring in the kingdom of glory. That's what we see here. That theme continues. That theme is repeated for us. Recapitulated. So that we get the message. That we don't need to give up hope. Because you see, Jesus is coming. He is coming. And He will make all things right. And so what happens now is that while we saw this outward struggle between the church and the world in the first 11 chapters, now in the second part of the book of the Revelation of Jesus Christ in chapters 12 through 22, we see that this outward conflict is really a manifestation of the war between Christ and the dragon, between Christ and Satan. The dragon is going to try to destroy Christ. And in failing in that, he will try to destroy the church. And that's basically my theme for this morning. The, the dragon known as Satan wars against Christ and His church. He tries to destroy Christ. We'll see that in the first six verses. And then next time, Lord willing, we'll look at how the dragon tries to destroy the church. Because that is also what we find in chapter 12. Now chapter 12 begins uh, with clear evidence here that this is the beginning of another vision. Revelation chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. Now a great sign appeared in heaven. So, it's a new vision. What do we see? A woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head a garland of twelve stars. Then being with child, she cried out in labor and in pain to give birth. So this woman, we should realize, she's gloriously arrayed with the sun as her garment. The moon is her footstool. Around her head is this garland of 12 stars. And so what does all this symbolize? Well, I think it's pretty obvious that this, this woman is a symbol of the church. And this is seen in the Old Testament as well as in the New Testament. The people of God have always been represented as a bride, as a woman who is married to her God. We see this in, in the book of the Song of Solomon as well as the prophecies of Isaiah, prophecies of Hosea. Uh, the, the Apostle Paul in Ephesians 5 even makes that real clear connection between the marriage of a man and a woman is supposed to represent the, the marriage of Christ and His church. And the Holy Spirit there makes it clear that Christ is the bridegroom who loves His bride, who loves His church. He loves you. And He will do all that is necessary for you to save you and to sanctify you and to bring you to Himself. And, and Paul ends that section that this is a great mystery. But he, he wants us to know, he says, but I'm speaking concerning Christ and the church. Don't just look at this as advice for you know marriage counselors, for husbands and wives. No, there's a greater spiritual uh, understanding here that we need to have. And so we need to understand that the Scriptures make it clear that the church, in both the Old and New Testaments, is one. There is only one chosen people of God in Christ. There's only one tent, one vineyard, one family. Abraham is the father of all believers. Whether they're circumcised or not. Whether they're Jews or Gentiles. 
There's only one olive tree, one elect race, one royal priesthood, one holy nation. And they are God's peculiar or special people. I like the old King James, peculiar. Because I think we're often peculiar. But this is the language of the Old Testament and the New Testament. And they're blended together. I, I mean, I know the very first time I heard somebody say the people in the Old Testament were, uh, were the church of the Old Testament, it, it sounded a little weird to me, Right? But that's only because I was fed the the unbiblical idea that there were actually two separate people of God. And that the church was never known in the Old Testament. I I remember reading a book that actually defended this idea when I was in Bible college. uh, And it said that in glory, the redeemed Jews were going to be here on the earth. Renewed earth, of course. But Christians, you see, the church, we will be exalted to heaven and we will be with Christ. And while I was not reformed at the time, in fact, I had probably no idea what the word meant, I still had the hard time believing that I'm going to be in this favored position with Christ because that's really how it was presented when Abraham, the one who was called a friend of God, and Moses, who spoke to God face to face, they wouldn't be. I mean, it just didn't make sense to me. And so I had to write a paper on the book, which got me a C in the class, okay, and that's the only grade I ever got in that school that was less than an A. But I just couldn't, couldn't understand how, how you could come to that conclusion. Now, th- this is not new to you. At least, it's not new to you today. I mean, I made this clear from the beginning of this series. So, so let me remind you here what the Word of God reveals to us about the people of God. I mean, we see it all over the Old Testament. We see it in chapter 54 of Isaiah and Amos 9.11. Jesus speaks of it in the parable of the vineyard, Matthew 21. Paul uses this illustration of the olive tree in Romans chapter 11. You can look at the whole book of Galatians, especially chapter 3, and you see this over and over. You see it in the, in the latter part of Ephesians 2, where we are taught that Christ has now brought the Jew and the Gentile together to be one. In fact, I want to read that to you. You you probably should turn in your Bibles there or look in the Pew Bible. I want to look at Ephesians chapter 2. Read this. It's it's a little extended there, but as I wanted to reference this, I couldn't figure out where to stop. So I'm going to start at verse 12. And we see there that we Gentiles, Ephesians 2, were once without Christ, being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers from the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in this world. That's what we were. But now. And those are tremendous words when you think about it, right? There are several places in the Bible where it says, but God or but now. And it always means there's this great change in what is happening. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who were afar off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. We weren't near, but now we are. And then here's where it gets so clear, starting at verse 14. I'm kind of skipping around here. but For He Himself is our peace who has made both one and has broken down the middle wall of separation, having abolished in His flesh the enmity, that is, the law of commandments contained in ordinances, so as to create in Himself one new man from the two, thus making peace. And that he might reconcile them both to God in one body through the cross, thereby putting to death the enmity. And he came. And he preached peace to you who were afar off and to those who were near. The the preaching, you realize that the preaching of the gospel that's gone out through the world, it's really Christ preaching. That's what Paul says. 
For through Him we both have access by one Spirit to the Father. And now therefore you are no longer strangers and foreigners. That's what we were. But fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. Now that could be interpreted the New Testament and Old Testament there. Jesus Christ Himself being the chief cornerstone in whom the whole building being fitted together grows into a holy temple in the Lord in whom you also are being built together for a dwelling place of God in the Spirit. You see, this is the church. That's what the church is. The body of of Christ. It's, It's comprised of the elect from the Old and the New Testaments and those who follow. Us. We can add to that, you know, 1 Peter 2.9, which I've, I've kind of taken from that already. But the apostle there in 1 Peter 2.9 uses the Old Testament terms for God's people as the church, and he uses it as they are the church in the New Testament. Very same terms. He says that's what we are. We also, we've already seen this already in the book of Revelation chapter 4. We have the 24 elders, speaking of the 12 tribes and the 12 apostles, Right? We see, and we're going to see it again and when we get to Revelation 21 when John sees the new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven a bride, as a bride adorned for her husband. There's that language again, right? And how is this bride described? Well, on her gates are the names of the twelve tribes of Israel, the Old Testament church. And the wall of the city has twelve foundations and on them are the names of the twelve apostles, the New Testament church. And they're all joined together as one. One people of God. Now, I know I've spent a lot of time on this because I think it's important. So let's kind of move on here quickly to the the rest of this first part of this fourth vision. Uh, We're told that this woman in the vision is with child. She's pregnant. She's about to give birth. The pains of labor are upon her. And what do we see in verse 3 and 4? And another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great fiery red dragon having seven heads and ten horns and seven diadems on his heads. His tail threw a third of the stars of heaven. Drew drew a third of the stars of heaven and threw them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was ready to give birth to devour her child as soon as it was born. Now imagine here a, a winged serpent. Because you see, the serpent has grown, hasn't he? The serpent is now a dragon with this crested head, razor-sharp claws. He looks cruel, savage, malignant, vicious. You know, maybe a little picture of that might be, you know, if you've watched the uh, Hobbit movies and you've seen the dragon smog, right? And there just seems to be this evil about him. But that's kind of a picture of this vision, except this is even worse. But it's not a literal dragon. Let's understand that. The beast has seven crowned heads and ten horns. It's it's huge. It's immense. It lashes out with its tail. It sweeps away one-third of the stars of heaven, flings them to the earth. The seven crowns are not wreaths of victory. They're really crowns that claim victory, claim authority. But it's a false claim. The horns represent its destructive power. The stars, of course, are the vast number of evil spirits that join Satan in his rebellion against the Most High God. But what else? What else is the dragon doing in this vision? He's waiting. 
is ready. He's waiting to devour the child as soon as the woman gives birth. Does he succeed? Does he succeed in this? Does the dragon fulfill his desire to destroy this promised child? Of course not. Not in the least. And obviously this child that is born is our Lord Jesus Christ, the promised Redeemer, the promised Redeemer from the days of Adam and Eve. You know, we might not think that, you know, that this could actually be a pretty good Christmas text, but, but it's possible. Because this promised one, this is the promised one of, of Genesis 3.15 where God says to the serpent, right? I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. This is the promised son of, of Isaiah 7.14 who will be God with us. Therefore, the Lord Himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and He shall call His name Emmanuel, God with us. This is the child of, of Isaiah 9, verses 6 and 7. For unto us a child is born. Unto us a son is given. And the government will be upon His shoulder, and His name will be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of His government and peace, there will be no end. Upon the throne of David and over His kingdom to order it and establish it with judgment and justice from that time forward, even forever. And the zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. God's going to make this happen, He says. To that we can add so many more, including Micah 5, verses 2-5. through 5. But you, Bethlehem, Ephrathah, Though you are little among the thousands of Judah, yet out of you shall come forth to me the one to be ruler in Israel, whose goings forth are from old, from everlasting. Therefore he shall give them up until that time that she who is in labor has given birth. Then the remnant of his brethren shall return to the children of Israel, and he shall stand and feed his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God, and they shall abide. For now he shall be great to the ends of the earth, and this one shall be peace. I told you this could be a Christmas text, right? I mean, all I really need to say now is Merry Christmas, right? It's, it's a little early, but I've seen decorations already, so I think we're okay. Uh, the fulfillment here is the birth of our Savior. Because that was the promise from long ago. That's the promise of the Gospel, that God would send the Savior, the Redeemer, who would rescue us. Now just to finish off this portion of the vision, the woman, we're told, gives birth to the male child. A man-child, I think it says in other translations. And he is a mighty one. He is one who will rule all nations with the rod of iron. As you heard last week in Psalm 2. It's also a quote from Psalm 110, verse 1. And, and while the dragon is ready... While he's there waiting to devour the child, we're told the child is suddenly caught up to God and His throne. And again, this, this is an obvious uh, allusion to the ascension of Christ. After His death, burial, and resurrection, He ascends into heaven to the right hand of the Father. This child is the promised seed of the woman. The one who would crush the serpent's head. See, the Apostle Paul, he uses this designation, the seed of the woman for Christ in Galatians chapter 4, verse 4. There he's explaining that Christ, in fact, he says the word seed is singular, 
And it speaks of this one in particular, of Christ. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth His Son, born of a woman, means the same thing, of the seed of the woman. Born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, that, he, that we might receive the adoption of sons. Now you know what that adoption means, right? That we're taken out of the family of Satan. And we're brought into the family of our Lord Jesus Christ, the family of God. We were by nature children of wrath, and now we are children of God. And just in case you think any otherwise here the, the, about the child being Christ, it, it's actually, I think, confirmed in verse 10 of this same chapter where it says, Then I heard a loud voice saying in heaven, Now salvation and strength and the kingdom of our God and the power of His Christ have come. For the accuser of our brethren who accused them before God day and night has been cast down. We're going to get into that more next time, Lord willing. So, <clears throat> having failed to destroy the Christ, the dragon turns his attention to this glorious, radiant woman. And we're told the woman fled into the wilderness where she has a place prepared by God that they should feed her there 1,260 days. We're going to get into this more next time as we continue in chapter 12. But let's, let me say here to begin with uh, that the wilderness is the world. This is where God's people, the church, where we are sustained and nourished and protected by the grace of God to us in Christ. God has prepared a place for us here. And the 1,260 days, that's equal to the 42 months that we've seen previously, as well as equal to the times and times and half a times that we're going to see later on in this same chapter. And all of these uh, terms represent the current gospel age. They represent the time between Christ's first coming and His second coming. The millennium, the thousand years that we're going to look at in Revelation chapter 20, eventually, again, Lord willing. Now, now, people of God, I'm going to stop there uh, as far as our text is concerned because what I want to do now is I want to show you from the Scriptures that these things are true. That, that we have a fulfillment of this vision, at least a partial fulfillment in the Word of God already. So what I want to do is kind of give you a brief history of the war between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. The battle that is going on has been going on from the beginning between Christ and Satan. And we should look at this as evidence to assure our faith that God is going to do exactly what He says He's going to do. And it all begins, as most things do, at the beginning. When the serpent tempted our first parents. I mean, there were only two people. And they fell into sin, right? They ate the forbidden fruit. You, you know the story from Genesis 12. And, and yet, while Satan struck the first blow... And probably thought he'd outsmarted God. Our God has the last word, doesn't he? And he promises a redeemer whose heel would crush the serpent's head. Though his heel would be struck by the serpent, ultimately he would crush the serpent's head. And, and what I want you to realize, and you've heard this many times, that's not only the gospel in a nutshell, the proto-evangelicum, you've heard that many times. It's also... The history of redemption in a nutshell. Right there. And it's really no different than what we see going on here in Revelation chapter 12. The serpent of Genesis 3 is now the dragon of Revelation chapter 12. The serpent has grown into a dragon. 
The seed of the woman in Genesis 3 is the male child of Revelation chapter 12, our Savior and Lord Jesus Christ. And this is the announcement of the war. The battle of the ages. The conflict of all time. This is what's really going on. And it doesn't take long for the war to begin, does it? Eve gives birth to a son. And she says, I have acquired a man from the Lord. You know, it could be interpreted, I have, inqu- I have acquired the man from the Lord. It's possible she maybe even thought that this son would be that promised one. But he doesn't turn out to be the promised one, does he? It's not the case. Eve gives birth to another son, to Abel. And after they grow up, we're told Cain rises up against his brother and murders him. This, this is the first attack of the dragon upon the line of Christ, of the seed of the serpent upon the seed of the woman. But Adam and Eve have another son by the name of Seth. And it is through his family line we're told that the promised one shall come. As you know, the world becomes more and more corrupt. Days, like Jesus says, are similar to the last days before His coming. And the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And it repented the Lord that He had made man. The world is filled with darkness, filled with evil. Again, it looks like Satan is one. He's corrupted the whole world. But there's still one bright spot of light. Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. There's this one family made up of eight souls that still seek the Lord. And God in His grace saves them from His wrath by telling Noah to build an ark because He's going to flood this whole world. The ark, of course, is, is a type of Christ. You realize that, right? That it's only those who are in the ark who are saved. And all those who are outside the ark Outside of Christ, they perish. The world was full of evil, full of wickedness. And yet Satan did not win. We also see the promise of God of a Redeemer that was given to Abraham. An old man. Remember this? His wife is barren. She's never... They've been married for years. No children. And yet God in His mercy and His grace gave conception to Sarah who gives birth to the son of promise. To Isaac. Isaac's wife, Rebecca, right? She was barren for 20 years. And Isaac prayed. And God again kept his covenant promise of this coming seed. Esau and Jacob were born. And the promise continued through Jacob. And yet, what did Jacob do? I mean, God told him to do it. He he went down to Egypt, right? And eventually, the Egyptians forget all about the deliverance under Joseph. And they make the Israelites their slaves. Try to exterminate them. But again, God comes and He rescues His people. I think it's another picture of our eschatology right there. God sends Moses, who brings them out of Egypt to the land of promise. And even though they make it, think about this, even though they make it into the promised land, finally under Joshua, which is the Old Testament name for Jesus, right? The Deliverer. There are more and more times when this whole nation is at risk. When the the whole promise that God had made from the very beginning is at risk of a becoming Redeemer. The promised seed of the woman is all at risk. 
I mean, you know some of the stories, right? In the time of Judges, there arose another generation that did not know the Lord nor the works which He had done for Israel. Later on in that same book, it tells us about the condition of the people. There was no king in Israel, and everyone did that which was right in his own eyes. It looks again like Satan is going to win, doesn't it? But God gives them a king, a man after his own heart in David. Think of this. Uh, the wicked king Saul tries to kill David twice with a spear, right? Saul even hunted him down over and over trying to kill him. Even though David had never done anything against Saul. In fact, you know that David actually saved Saul's life on more than one occasion. And it seems kind of ironic, doesn't it, that, that Saul personally tried to kill David twice with his spear and there are at least two times that David personally saved Saul's life. But even though God reveals more of His covenant promise to David, remember, He promises him an everlasting king, an everlasting kingdom. And we know that that points to our Lord Jesus Christ. There are still all of these things that happen that threaten to undo the promises. The kingdom splits in two. Those two kingdoms, they fight against each other half the time. The kings in the north are never anyone ever good. The kings in the south, though, they're the guys who come from David's line, who reign in the southern kingdom, many of them are wicked. They're evil men. I mean, uh, of one it says, it's Jehoram, he died to no one's sorrow. They were glad when he was gone. The kingdoms intermarry. They bring Baal worship to the southern kingdom. Eventually there's the slaughter of all the king's sons under the wicked queen uh, mother, Athaliah. And she's the daughter of Ahab and Jezebel. And yet God in His mercy... And his good providence saves one son, Joash. Think of that. After all this time, there's, there's only one person left who can bring the promises of God to fulfillment. And yet, in spite of the war of the, between you know, the seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman, in spite of the war of Satan against the kingdom of God and the promises of God, God preserves the line. The line is not broken. Now, beloved, I'm not trying to make this an exhaustive account. Maybe you're exhausted by it already, but th there's much more here that could be said. You know that. The point is, it's clear that there's always been this battle between good and evil, between God and Satan, between the kingdom of God and the kingdoms of this world, between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. And to this, we can add the destruction of those northern kingdoms by Assyrian, by the uh, southern kingdom, by the Babylonians. And you know why those judgments came, right? Because of the sin of the people. And yet, once again, we are reminded of the grace of God in all of this because in spite of what man does, in spite of man's sin, in spite of man's failure, God is always faithful to His promise and to His people. You know, even in captivity, there's this plan under the wicked Haman, right? To destroy all the Jews. And even though God's name is not even mentioned in the book of Esther, you see the hand of God moving providentially over and over to save His people, to bring about the events to keep His people alive, to keep His covenant promise alive. And how does the Old Testament end? It ends with a call to repent in the book of Malachi. With the promise of the messenger who will come and who will prepare the way before the Lord. 
It's still there. The promise is still there. The promised One will come. He is coming. The Son of Righteousness shall arise with healing in His wings. That's speaking of salvation for God's people. That's what Malachi promises in the very last chapter. And then there's a silence for 400 years. But when the day comes, the promised child is born in Bethlehem. And what happens then? Right? The devil is still waiting, isn't he? The dragon is still waiting. King Herod tries to kill him. And yet again, God protects his son. Satan even comes personally to attack our beloved Savior. And our Savior defeats him at the temptation in the wilderness. And then to the surprise of man and of Satan, our Lord Jesus Christ also defeats them all at the cross where they thought they'd all won. The dragon's been waiting. The dragon strikes at his heel. Our Savior dies on the cross. It looks like all is lost, doesn't it? It's all over. Disciples thought so. If we were there, we would have thought so too. But what happens? The Lord rises on the third day in victory over sin and death and hell. Forty days later, He ascends into heaven where He takes His rightful place on the throne. And what's He doing right now? Well, He's ruling and reigning and interceding for us. And He's also waiting for His enemies to be made His footstool. Because that's what's next. And beloved, really, that's what we're celebrating right now. Today, around the Lord's table. We're celebrating the fact that Christ always wins. You probably heard that from somebody else. And it's not true. Christ always wins. He always has. He always will. The world and all the hosts of Satan, Satan himself, they've always been at odds with our Lord, with our Savior. They put Him to death. But God raised Him up and exalted Him and has given Him a name which is above every name. And at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow. Of those in heaven, of those on earth, of those under the earth. And that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. I don't have to tell you we live in troubled times. We do not know what tomorrow may bring. But we know this. Our God, our King, our Savior, our Lord has always won the victory. And He always will. So we don't need to be fearful. We don't need to be anxious. We don't need to fret. We don't need to worry. The Bible actually addresses each of those things. You know that. Because you know why? Because we're not trusting in ourselves. We're trusting in our faithful Savior. The Lord Jesus Christ. And as we hear the truth of His Word, as we partake of the sacrament that proclaims His death for us, for sinners, as we do that, we can rejoice. We can rest. We can be at peace. Because we are assured that He will always deliver us through whatever comes our way. 
God has promised this twice in Deuteronomy chapter 31, and He repeats it in Hebrews 13. Those very simple words. I've told you before there's like five negatives here to be emphatic, even though it doesn't really come through in the English translation. It does come through in this hymn we're going to sing. But God says to you this morning, I will never leave you nor forsake you. That's God's promise to you. And all God's people said, Amen.